Welcome everyone to episode 27 of the Wi-Fi Pioneer Podcast. We're your hosts, Colton Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? All right, so before we jump into everything else, just a quick note, you may hear some lambs crying in the background. I still have some bottle babies in the other room who uh, it's still too cold outside to put them out in the barn, so uh, we we put them in at night, and you may hear them crying periodically throughout this uh, recording, so don't worry about it. They're just little lambs doing little lamb things. With that, um, today we're going to, I, I want to talk, talk about the uh, farm we just purchased a couple weeks ago. I haven't really gotten into the details of it because I've been just going a million miles an hour, but the process of buying a farm and getting an ag loan is different than your FHA loan and it's different than your uh, SBA business loans. It's like a weird hybrid of the two. Uh, so the, the property we bought is both our residence and a business, right? It's a farm business. It's got over a hundred acres of uh, farm land that's going to be used to, to generate money, but it also has two homes on it as well as some other outbuildings, but it has two residential homes on the property. So when we bought it, um, if you ever bought an FHA loan or gone through the FHA process, there's all kinds of like safety standards and code and stuff that the house has to meet before the loan will get approved. So if you've ever sold or bought a home and it's a little bit older, if the home inspector goes through and he'll come back and be like, hey, here's, you know, these safety violations, the stairs, the, the railing on the stairs is no good or the deck is loose or whatever else. And then the lender will say, hey, before we can approve the loan, these things have to be fixed. Um, pretty, pretty normal process. Well, with the ag loan, it's uh, as is. So if you're buying a farm and the farmhouse has, is missing a roof or all the windows are smashed out or the electrical is no good, they don't care. They'll just want to know is the price that they're financing meet the appraisal. And as long as the, it appraises properly, that's all they care about. So you need to get the home inspector and you, you have to go through the home inspection carefully. When the appraisal comes back, it's not the same thing as a home inspection. So you might want to pay a home inspector to go through and find any potential issues. So, cause you can't rely on the lender and the appraisal to take care of that for you, like you would an FHA. So hire your own inspector is the first thing. Uh, the second thing is compared to like an SBA loan where you're uh, buying a business and you're looking at the, uh, you know, the profit and loss on a business to see if it matches up with the uh, asking price. Farms in general are not required to make a, a profit. So smart farmers, they make very little you know, on the books, on their tax returns, they make very little money or they lose money on their farm LLC. Uh, it's just the smarter way to do things because you're, you're not required to ever make a profit. You just have to make sales, but no profit. So it's a good, good way to uh, generate tax, um, tax shelters and stuff and write-offs. Well, when they're going to buy the property, the appraisal process and the lenders are going to look at the returns of the prior owner. And when they see that, you know, they're making a couple thousand dollars a year or negative, they're, they're going to kind of hold that against you in the appraisal process. So even though you may be able to generate in reality, 50,000, $100,000 a year off the property, because the bookkeeping is a little more creative, it's only going to show, you know, five, $10,000 or even less. It may show negative. So, the appraisal is not going to reflect properly the money you can make. Now that's a good thing to you in some regards, but you know, in the initial appraisal process, it's definitely um, something that they're looking at. So what they'll, what that means for you is if the business 
if the prior owners were not showing a, a high income on the farm business, you need to make sure you have an income outside of the farm that can pay the mortgage. That's the big thing. Now, in our case, you know, we bought this farm using Wi-Fi money and we're still making Wi-Fi money. So if we did nothing with the farm, it wouldn't affect us in any way. We still, you know, we'd still make the payments and make the improvements and everything else we want to do. The fact that this farm generates cash for us is just a bonus on top of, you know, living with Wi-Fi money. But that's something you have to think about when buying ag land is that you may need to show off farm, non-farm income that can service the loan. Um, those are the two, probably the two big things to consider um, when, when doing an ag loan. Oh, and then the last thing, this is a big one too. It's both fixed and adjustable rate mortgage. So it's a 30 year mortgage, but the first 15 years are fixed rate. Um, and the, you know, the, after starting year 16, it can be adjustable and adjustable rate mortgages only ever adjust up. They, you know, in the real world, they never adjust down. So you, you really want to be planning to have paid off or refinance that farm after 15 years, not 30. That's just something to think about. So when the uh, appraiser was, was looking at the cash flows that you would expect to get from that farm, uh, did they ding you on, on valuation? Like did the valuation come up short? The valuation did come up short for us. And, um, we, so we tried to bring it back to, uh, uh, negotiate the price down that failed. And at that point, kind of like we talked about last time, you have to decide what's a property and what's a business worth to you. Right. We could have walked away from the deal and had it been November or December, I would have because it was, um, April and we were just about to go into the growing season. I had to look at the difference in price and it wasn't significant. It, it, it was significant uh, today, but over the long term value of the property, it wasn't that big a deal. It was off by um, about $15,000, which was, I don't know, 5% or so the, the overall price of the property. Like it wasn't actually less than that. It was like 2% of the, it wasn't much, much difference uh, to the overall valuation. And by the end of this year, I'll have made enough improvements that the value of the property will reach what we paid for it. But um, it means that I had to, it was a combination of um, increasing the down payment and readjusting the, the mortgage itself. Um, because they, the ag loans typically want you to do 30% down as opposed to a home doing 20% down. But they, they readjusted it a little to where it was like, we only needed like 25% down. They actually met us in the middle, which wasn't normal, but they, they did. So we didn't have to shell out an extra 15,000 out of pocket to make up the difference. We had to do about six or seven, um, still enough to be annoying, but not, not devastating. You know, it wasn't, uh, wasn't horrible. Okay. So, uh, how did you figure out when you were going to buy this farm? How'd you figure out what you could reasonably make from it? So let's say you, I don't know, for some reason we're figuring out some downside planning and you're like, Gosh, what if my Wi-Fi money dries up later this year? Um, how do we know how much to to expect to make from this this property, especially given that you know the the financials you're going to see from that property probably aren't very reflective or have a lot of things that you can't really um, figure out from them? Um, so I looked at the neighboring properties uh, because this property wasn't um, it wasn't farmed. It, it so it's a hay producing property. I should probably put that out there. Um, because otherwise I can't, I can't talk about this in vague ways to make any sense. So it produces hay and 
I take the the price that's paid per ton for hay, which last year in our area was anywhere from uh, it was right around two ninety, but I round it down to two fifty, uh, being conservative on my numbers. So I say two fifty a ton for hay, and then I look at what the um, what the farmers around me are getting per acre, uh, and if they're getting three uh, three tons per acre, well, they've been working it back to back year after year. This property hadn't been worked for hay for like four years because the prior owners were out of their mind. You know, they could have been making a lot of money on this property and chose not to, which worked to my advantage. Uh, but since my neighbors are all getting three tons an acre, I'm assuming one and a half tons per acre because the property hasn't been worked, because it hasn't been seeded properly, because it hasn't been... Um, I don't know how much it's been grazed, so I don't know how much cow manure is down on the ground to be absorbed into the soil. So I went with one and a half tons. And then in a really good irrigated year, you can get two hay cuttings if you're going off of um, the co-op. Uh, we, we have a water co-op that pulls water from a reservoir, so as opposed to well water. Um, in a good year, you can get two cuttings. I'm assuming drought years, one cutting. So I did one cutting of hay at $250 a ton, one and a half tons per acre. And then that's my starting point because that's kind of the worst case scenario. That, that's a drought year with minimal water and the ground not producing well. And when I added all that up, you know, it's uh, 25, that's like $40,000 a year worth of hay. Now there's expenses in there with hay. There's going to be um, vehicle costs, uh, maintenance, fuel and other things, but $40,000 a year in hay is a really good, um, you know, that, that services the mortgage and then some in one cutting. Uh, so if this year, if all I make is 40,000, that's a good year. Now we're going to probably have enough water for two cuttings because the reservoirs are so full that they're almost spilling over into the uh, road because we had a really heavy winter and I'm, um, I'm putting some seed down th this next week. So I should, and should be the key word, I should get a lot more than one and a half tons per acre, and I should have enough water to do two cuttings. I'm not planning on that, but that means I could very well do double or more what my lowball estimates are. So all the planning is for that lowball conservative estimate. Anything above that in this first year is just icing on the cake. And then next year becomes a whole new thing because I'll take whatever money I make this year and uh, invest it into the farm for better irrigation equipment and, and other stuff like that. So that next year we do even better. Uh, so that's, that's the plan is like the first two to three years is so long as the Wi-Fi money is doing good, take all the farm income and reinvest it back into the farm so that we can consistently get that, you know, three, three tons an acre that everybody else is getting. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, what about livestock? You mentioned uh, cow manure and stuff like that. What kind of livestock are you going to raise? So I'm already raising sheep with a handful of pigs and llamas. Um, 100 acres in my area really isn't good for supporting cows. You cannot put enough, like if you're in, say, Alabama or um, you know one of those really wet southern states where it, you get year-round grass growth and constant rain, 100 acres, you can do a whole lot of cows on uh, compared to where I'm at. So I'm going to do sheep instead. I'm going to grow my sheep herd out to uh, over the next couple of years to about 100 sheep. And then that means I can sell 200 lambs a year. Um, I, I only do one lambing per year. So you can do two, but it's really tough on the girls. And um, 
you wind up with a lot of losses because if you're lambing in the winter time, you've got to provide warm areas and stuff. And I do all my lambing in the summer. And uh, so I'm going to grow my herd out to two to a hundred girls and two or three rams to service them. One lambing per year gives me about 200 lambs to sell and, you know, 200 lambs at two to 250 a piece. You know, when I grow them out, that's, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good ROI. Now, for fertilizing the ground, sheep are not a ruminant animal like cows, so their poop isn't as good for the ground. So in the wintertime, uh, my uncle happens to live across the street. I'm going to have his cows come over and graze and even do some hay feeding in the wintertime when they're eating hay. We'll just bring the bales over to my property so that they can wander around a bit and poop. And uh, come springtime, I'll, I'll turn my chickens loose to go tear through all the poop and peck at it and spread it around for me. And that's uh, that's the basic plan to it. Did you happen to see that uh, post from Tucker Max about um, how he decided whether to do, uh, well, he ended up doing sheep instead of cows on his property, but had a lot of the same uh, kind of methodology, just it takes a lot of, a lot of land for cows. And, um, you know, there, as you mentioned, there are some good benefits with uh, them being ruminants and such, but um, for a lot of people's purposes, they could actually really benefit from having sheep and it's not as, as huge of an impact as it would be for having cows. Yeah, I, you know, I, I did see that. And here's a couple other things about sheep. Um, they're not dangerous, right? So right now I, I do have cows on the property. You'll see me tweeting pictures of them. They, they belong to the prior owner and we've got an arrangement where he's going to keep them here for up to a year while he finds a new home for them. Um, and already I've had to go and patch some fence work because um, one day the bull decided he didn't like a, a piece of the corral. So he just walked straight through it. Um, that's the thing about fencing with cows. Um, it's a suggestion. The barbed wire doesn't hold them in. Hardboard corrals don't hold it. If they decide they want to go somewhere, they just walk and they walk right through it. I mean, they're not as bad as bison, which are really destructive, but you know, it was just a couple of days ago, the, the bull decided he wanted to be somewhere else. So he just walked straight through the fence and now he's on the other side. I, I came out in the morning and he's standing next to my car. So, and the problem with this bull is he's not aggressive, but he's playful, which is just as dangerous as an aggressive cow. A, a playful bull will, will kill you just as easily as an aggressive one. Um, he, he lives in the corral normally with uh, the mule. And um, I was in there harnessing up the mule to take him for a walk. And I feel this breath on the back of my leg. And I turn and the cow's got his nose under my ass. And he just flings me across the corral. You know, he launched me a couple feet in the air and sent me flying about five or six feet. I, I landed on my ass. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a bad idea. So now I, um, you know, now I lure the mule into another paddock close the gate to make sure that the bull can't sneak up on me. Like, it's just, you don't have to worry about that with, uh, with sheep. You know, you have a ram that weighs 150, 200 pounds. He might headbutt you occasionally, but it's, it's not, uh, it's not dangerous. He can't hurt you. So that's, that's one advantage to sheep is they're safe. Uh, the other thing with dealing with sheep is if you have to give one a vaccination or deal with an abscess or clip, clip their hooves, you can do it all yourself. You don't need um, head catches. You don't need heavy equipment. You certainly don't need a vet. And you can do it right in the field. If you can, if you have a good relationship with your sheep, like I do, mine come up, I pat on the and I can walk right up to them. So if I need to do something to them, I can walk right up, grab them by the ankles, flip them over, and then give them a shot or whatever I got to do. Uh, they're a lot easier to manhandle because they only weigh one to 200 pounds. 
Yeah, I think one of the other things that Tucker brought up was, and those were all pretty similar comments. One of the other things he brought up was it's way easy, easier to track where your meat goes when you're butchering lambs versus cows. Uh, what do you think of that? Um, I'm not quite sure what he was referring to on that, but I know like sometimes when you're dealing with butchers, if you don't have a good butcher, you may not get your cow. I don't know how much, how relevant that is now in 2023. I don't know if that's still just an old rumor thing, um, but it used to be that like during hunting season, you'd shoot a deer and bring it in and everybody else would shoot a deer at the same time. And you would just get back roughly whatever, 70, 80 pounds, whatever they were averaging out when they were butchered up. And it may not be the one you shot. And there was talk about if you didn't tag your your um, sheep or if you didn't tag your bull or your, your cow going in, uh, they'd lose track of it. So they would just walk into the meat locker and be like, well, here's a cow. You ordered a cow. And they just cut it up and give you that one. Which means that if you went through the effort of raising, say, a Highland cow, which has different flavoring than a, uh, than a pole, South Pole or Angus cow, um, and you grass fed it and you grass finished it as opposed to graining it out, and then you just get a, a run-of-the-mill Ang Angus cow that's been grain finished back, I mean, it defeats the whole purpose. You got a cheaper cow and you got a, um, you know, a less healthy cow and it, it's going to taste different and it, you know, it defeats the whole purpose of raising a specific breed on your own. Um, whereas, I guess not as many people, like, I'm not sure what he's talking about, that it's easier to keep track of sheep. I don't know if it's just because not as many people take sheep into a butcher or it's because you can easily butcher a sheep yourself. Again, it's only 100 to 200 pounds, depending on the breed. You can hoist one of those up in your barn on your own with a rope and, and butcher it by yourself. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. He can do the butchering himself, so he keeps track of the, the meat. But, uh, I mean, 200 lambs, butchering 200 lambs a year, how, how long do you think that would take you? Yeah. The other thing is, um, just, just a kind of a side note, but they make these um, thermostat kits for air conditioners where like a window, you're, you're run of the mill window air conditioner. You can put this, um, I forget what they call it, but if you Google it, you can kind of find it. You switch out the thermostat so that it'll bring it down to like 32 degrees, what you would make a refrigerator. So you can, in your barn or shop, you can just make a, say, you know, whatever, eight by eight room, insulate it uh, nicely with those. Um, you can buy like four by eight sheets of insulation, uh, styrofoam insulation from Home Depot. You can line a room with those and um, uh, you can make your own um, meat locker, essentially. You can insulate it, put this air conditioner in, put the little thermostat on there. So, um, but more to your question about how long would it take to butcher say 200 lambs a year that I don't know. Um, I'm not good at butchering, but I've, cause I haven't made all this stuff yet. Uh, I don't know that like I wouldn't butcher. I know I said, I want to sell 200. I wouldn't butcher 200 a year because I can't, at least in my state, I can't butcher it and sell the butchered meat. So I'm not sure that'd be more relevant. I mean, you get good at butchering a sheep. You can do probably two or three in a day easily, maybe more. I'd have to ask a butcher on that one, how long it takes them. It doesn't, it shouldn't take long. It's a small animal. But um, the bigger thing is when it comes to mammals, you can't sell the butchered stuff yourself. You have to sell it. Uh, you have to go through a butcher uh, to do it. Um, whereas like chickens and turkeys, I can butcher a few thousand of those a year and sell them direct to customer. 
I don't know why every state's different. Some of them it's a thousand, some it's 10,000 a year. And I don't know why the cutoff, right? If I can butcher a thousand, how come number thousand and one all of a sudden has to have a, uh, a licensed butcher do it? Um, when it comes to sheep and cows, you, you cannot butcher it yourself. You have to have some kind of inspected butchering facility. It gets really weird. Um, so that, that's where I'd be at. I'd still have to sell it to somebody who'd have to take it to a butcher. So even if you didn't butcher the lambs yourself, I mean, as you said, 200 to $250 a lamb at 200 lambs a year. Uh, I mean, that's what, forty to $60,000? dollars forty to $50,000? $40,000 to $50,000 a year. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty good for how low-impact lambs are. So, I mean, that's a nice little addition to the, to the hang on the property. Yeah, and the thing is, it's finding the balance between um, the hay and the animals. Because the more, once you get a certain amount of animals, they're going to wind up eating your hay in the winter, right? So I have to keep, the more animals I have, the more hay I have to hold back for myself and not sell. So then it comes down to, if I can sell one ton of hay for $250, can I feed that ton of hay to an animal that'll give back more than $250? And when you start dealing with cows, um, the math starts not working out with sheep. Sheep can be uh, messy if you don't have a good mix of grasses in your hay, because nobody eats a hundred percent of that, that uh, 2000 pounds, even though a sheep eats say five pounds of hay a day, it's the math isn't going to be perfect. He may eat five pounds, but he's going to waste at least one pound. So you got to figure six pounds a day. Um, but if I can feed that 2000 pounds of hay to an animal, and, and in that animal span, it, it yields more than $250, then it's worth keeping the hay back. But if all I'm doing is trading $250 in hay for $250 in lamb, well, there's, that's just extra steps. I'm just taking a bale and then feeding it. I might as well just sell the bale. So um, the nice thing about the lambs is I've got parts of my property that I can't cut hay on because it's too hilly, it's too, you know, the, the machinery can't go on it. So they can graze that through the whole haying season. And I still have my in-laws place that I was using uh, the, the land I was uh, leasing from them to get my farm started. I can move them, the, the, all the lambs there pretty easily for a few months out of the year to graze their property. Again, that's a property that can't be cut for hay at all either. And I can feed a lot more lambs on their property than I can cows. So between the unmowable part of my air, my land and my, my in-laws land, I could feed those hundred sheep for most of the year without having to de uh, dig into too much hay. Yeah, makes sense. Um, kind of just generally, I, as you went through this process, did you have any opinions about how hard it is for somebody to start a farm? Let's say if they didn't come from a farming family. I mean, these are all, you know, relevant things to know. And there's, there's quite a bit of, of uh, you know, uh, expertise that's passed down through generations. Are you able to just kind of like learn on the fly or, or, uh, do you need, do you need someone to kind of, um, help you with the transition is it easier, a lot easier if you're your family to get that started? A little bit of both. Um, I, in general, I learn by doing, um, for as much research as I could do, you know, I read books on, on farming. I read, uh, all the books that Joel, Joel Salatin and Greg Judy and, um, Jim Garrish, all the big names in regenerative agriculture. I've read some some other books and from other guys and um, watched a lot of farming videos and stuff. All of that is good, but
but that's 70 to 80 percent of what you need maybe uh at most because your farm is not their farm you're in a different state you have different finances you have a different problem solving method you have a different breed of animal so you can't just do exactly what those guys do in their books um and also they're in year 20 30 40 of farming you're in year one nobody writes a book for the year one farmer because by time they have enough knowledge to write a book they're a year 30 year 40 farmer and they don't remember 40 years ago when they were year one so it's very hard to be a year one farmer taking advice from a 40-year farmer because there's steps between what's actionable from what they say to where you are currently it's not that their advice is is bad their, their advice is great it's just there's there's a couple steps you need to take from where you are to where their advice really starts working for you um, that's the hardest part about year one uh, with family helping out with a farm my uncle lives across the street quite quite literally across the street we can drive uh, through from my gate across the road through his gate and uh, be in his fields and he's been farming this land both hay and cattle for 20 or 30 years and his brother actually owned the property I'm on 30 years ago. So him and his brother are able to come over and show me stuff and say, you know, Hey, you know, here's, here's where we bury these electrical lines. Here's where this pump is. Here's, you know, when we flood irrigate this field, here's the best pattern to do it. Like they can show me all that stuff, which is, is great for work in this land, um, for this property specifically, which is good. But um, it's up to me to figure out stuff like, you know, nobody in the family's done sheep. Um, nobody's done sheep and pigs at the same time. So figuring out all these little year one intricacies, right? Because um, there's financial constraints as well. Uh, in a perfect world, you would tear up all the old fencing. The fencing I have on this property is probably 50 years old. In a perfect world, I would just tear it all up and put new fencing in. Well, that's a, you know, multi tens of thousands of dollar project. So instead, I'm going to, you know, this year go around with stakes and uh, put in metal, metal T-posts where the fence is weak and then putting in like electric fencing. This is what I learned last year. Uh, putting in electric fencing alongside barbed wire is a very delicate skill that needs attention because if that bar electric fence wire browns out on the barbed wire, you, you know, it just you, you lose all your electric con conductivity. So in a perfect world, you would rip up all that um barbed wire and just put in the electric fence wire well it wasn't my property and uh, my my in-laws wanted to keep the uh the barbed wire on their property so i had to run it alongside you know you don't you don't argue something like that when you're getting the land for free uh and now i figured out how to you know now on this property i can run a, one or two strands of uh, electric wire in between the barbed wire and i know how to do it now without grounding it out Again, perfect world, you just take the barbed wire out and replace it with electric fence. But this isn't perfect world, and I'm not dropping 20 to 30 grand on fencing. That, that just ain't happening. So instead, I'll patch up the posts, and now I know I've got all the tools I need to put in the electric fence without it grounding out against barbed wire. Because here's the next thing nobody tells you. Sheep and barbed wire, they don't care. Sheep, goats, pigs... They'll walk straight through barbed wire. It doesn't matter if it's five strands, six, seven strands. It doesn't matter how tight it is or how close together it is. They will walk straight through it. They don't care. It's not even a suggestion to them. So if you're not putting up either a field fence, which is um, like little squares, basically a square metal fencing, or an electric fence wire, 
those sheep are going to go wherever they please. Um, so that's a, something to think about too. Um, barbed wire will actually keep cows in, but it won't keep their babies in. Uh, calves will walk straight through electro or, uh, through barbed wire fence as well. They're small and they can just wiggle right through. Um, cows on the other hand, have to really decide they want to be on the other end before they knock it down. But, uh, sheep, you'll find them wherever they feel like going. If you don't have a hard, a hard fence or a electric fence. Yeah. So maybe some, some site specific, uh, or location specific wisdom there from your, from your uh, family. Um, and, uh, you know, a few special situations you had to figure out like the, uh, um, the barbed wire with the uh, electric fencing. Um, but generally speaking, what you were talking about later on, it, it seems to me like somebody needs to write a book about this because there are a lot of people leaving the city right now to set up their own little sustainable farm. And I imagine they are all struggling with all this stuff. Have you thought about writing that down? I, you know, I've thought about that, but the issue is so much of it is site specific. Um, that's the big thing. Like when I said that, like Joel Salatin and Jim Garish's books and Greg Judy's books will get you 70% of the way. That other 30%, yeah, it's the the year one versus year 40 gap, but it's also site specific. Like I couldn't write a book about farming in Florida. There, there's nothing I could tell you that would be useful. Same thing with if you're uh, in Maine, right? Like it, it's totally different climate. Um, and those guys, they can give you a lot of the general advice that works everywhere, but that that 30% difference I'm referring to, a lot of it is site specific. And then it's, it's person specific. You know, if you have no handyman skills, you are in big trouble. You have to know how to fix things and you have to know how to uh, Jimmy rig things too, because you don't have the money, you know, year one, not everybody has the money to uh, fix everything on site. Like I could easily drop um, on the property I'm on now, I could easily drop half a million dollars into improvements. You know, there's just, I, and they're not all needed, mind you, like it's just, the good idea fairy takes off. And this, this is actually something uh, Joel Salatin writes about um, that he does get absolutely correct about the year one farmer is um, when you're in your late thirties or early forties, leaving uh, a high paying corporate job to be a farmer, you're used to having enough money to do whatever you want. So you just go right out and buy and buy and buy. It's like, I need a tractor. You go buy a brand new tractor. Oh, I need a uh, four wheeler. You go buy a brand new four wheeler. I just did that actually, but, um, you know, not the tractor or the four wheeler, but you know, it's like, oh, the fence is down. All right. Let's just put in all new fencing. They don't fix anything. They just replace. And then by the end of the year, they've spent God awful amounts of money because they don't take the time to fix things. So you have to, um, you have to be willing to sacrifice time over money because now you're fixing, um, broken things versus, uh, just replacing. And this is um, kind of tangent to this, but because I make uh, Wi-Fi money as well, I have to balance out Wi-Fi time and farm time. And this is uh, the first couple of weeks, probably a few months is going to be hellish because I have to do so much writing, so much editing, so much um, social media advertising per day. I can't, I can only scale back on that so much. Otherwise it starts to really drop off. You can't afford, like when you're doing Wi-Fi stuff that's dependent on social media advertising and then, you know, daily marketing, you can't ignore it for days on end. Likewise with the farm, you know, when the bull goes and knocks a hole in the fence, you can't wait till tomorrow to go fix that. That has to be fixed today. So I'm, I'm in this, uh, 
horrible hybrid world right, right now where I'm working 16 hour days because I, I have to do my Wi-Fi stuff, but I have to get the initial parts of this farming stuff going and repaired so that this summer, you know, throughout the whole summer, I can grow my crop. Um, now I'll get systems in place and it'll taper off in a few weeks or a few months and I'll get to some equilibrium. But that initial setup, I mean, um, my first year of farming was uh, a nightmare because I had sheep that were lambing in wintertime. I had livestock guardian dogs that were puppies that were too small to protect from coyotes. So I'm training them to live with the sheep, dealing with lambing in the wintertime, which is a horrible time to lamb, moving the sheep in and out of the corrals so they could be clean, basically, and do some winter grazing. But then I had to move them back in at night because the, the dogs couldn't protect from the coyotes. So I was working several hours a day until I could get all the systems in place. And then springtime comes, I could put them out in the field. The dogs were big enough to actually protect the herd. And like everything fell into place and what was two hours a day became 15 minutes a day. Now I'm back in that phase on the new property where everything needs two hours a day again, but, or actually right now it's more than two hours a day. It's two hours a day for the animals. And then there's all the maintenance I'm doing and repairs. But once the repairs are done and certain things are upgraded and I get systems in place for the animals, I'll be back to, you know, an hour a day for the farm, freeing me up to go back to Wi-Fi time. And that's, that's just something you have to think about if you're running two businesses at the same time is something's got to give. What if you just hired a farmhand, say someone you didn't have to train to kind of help out for this intermediate period? There are some locals that are going to help me with some things. Um, so yeah, yeah, I have, uh, I have a cousin, I guess my, my uncle's grandson. So whatever relation of cousin that becomes second cousin or whatever, who can do some helping out. He's like in his early twenties. And then there's the ranch hand who was the prior owner's ranch hand. Who's um, kind of been showing me some stuff that he did last year, a little bit like he didn't, he wasn't allowed to work the land properly, but he was able to do some things. And I've talked to him about covering me if I have to go out of town or something, or if I'm going to go later in the season, if I decide to go uh, on one of my fishing trips, he can kind of watch the land for me. But for the day-to-day stuff, I really just got to figure it out myself because if I hire somebody at the beginning, I don't learn how to do it and I can't set up the system. So I've got to pay the time penalty up front now so I can build an efficient system later. Uh, it's just like any new skill. Like, yes, you can, you can uh, farm a lot of stuff out, but if you don't know how to do it yourself, then you don't know that you're farming it out right. You don't know that you're hiring out the help and that the help is doing it correctly. And you can never get a good system in place. So you become dependent on paying people to do things that you probably don't need to pay them to do. Yeah, it makes sense. So among the stuff that you were just mentioning before, what what's working well, what's not working well. And the reason is I'm asking is there's lots of people, probably some of our listeners who are, you know, figuring out the Wi-Fi thing, have intentions to move out to the country and are going to be, you know, right in the same, <laughs> right in the same spot. So what can they anticipate? What stuff can they get ready for ahead of time? Uh, and, and, how are you managing that process? The very first issue for me is my Wi-Fi money is uh, writing based and my creativity is first thing in the morning. Uh, very early in the morning is when I'm at peak creativity and peak motivation to sit in front of a computer. The issue is we're going in the summer and the morning time is the best time to be outside working. So I've got to make a decision between sit at a computer or go outside. 
And I really want to be outside right now because the weather, it's still, you know, in the sixties, sometimes fifties, first thing in the morning, but by the afternoon it's up in the eighties and I don't like, uh, again, I'm in my forties after about 85 degrees, it gets, starts to take a toll on me to be outside. It, I don't like outdoor work above 85. And certainly when we get in the summer and it's like in the nineties, that gets really tough. So I want to do all the manual labor first thing in the morning. And I haven't readjusted my, my mind yet, my creativity to be able to do creative computer-based work in the afternoon. So the perfect world between now and the end of summer is going to be where I go out in the morning, do the farm chores, do any labor chores I have to do, and then come in as it gets hot for, you know, three, four hours in the afternoon when it's its hottest, sit in front of the computer then in the air conditioning, do all my my Wi-Fi work and, and social media stuff and do my writing and then go back out after dinner for, you know, again, summertime, the sun doesn't set till almost nine o'clock. I can, after dinner time, I got like three hours of awesome, cool sunset uh, work I could be doing outside. And, and the thing is, it's not just that it's, it's the labor. It's, I love being outdoors during that time of day, the, the early morning and the late night. So it's the best of both worlds on the farming end. It's just, readjusting my mind. I don't know that I can do that. Right. I don't know that I can control my creativity that way. So if I can do this, then I'll just do farming in the morning, Wi-Fi in the afternoon, farming in the evening. It may not work out that way. I it may work out that I wind up doing writing in the morning, a little bit of farming in the afternoon, and then a lot of farming in the evening. We'll, we'll kind of just take it day by day and see how it goes. That's the very first thing. Um, the next thing is getting systems in place for both. Now, um, I can do, I can write a couple chapters in advance if I sometimes, but it's hard for me because I can only competently write so much in one given period. But I can do other things like when uh, for my my uh, uh, advertising and stuff, I can do, I can set them up several days worth of videos in one in one afternoon, and then every day just take a couple minutes to post a video and not have to do it daily. So those are things I can do. I can do the work on the front end so that they'll give me more time to do farm stuff. If I set up all my advertising on one day uh, for the Wi-Fi business, things like that. And then the flip, the flip side of that is when I need to catch up on Wi-Fi money. Once I'm through this, this damage control of, of owning a new farm and I get all the repairs made that I need and get, get, I can put systems in place where, Prior to this farm, I was telling you, I had my, my daily chores down for the for the animals down to 15 minutes. I just I'd pull into the driveway, go feed, water, check a few things, and then I, I could be out of there. So when I can get my get the repairs made and get my um, irrigation set up to where I just have to move a few tarps, open a few gates, and then feed some feed some animals, um, like the dogs and, and the chickens that eat grain, versus sheep are just eating uh, grass now. I don't have to worry about feeding them, but... Uh, the animals eat grain. If I can get all my morning chores down to half an hour or an hour, that frees me up to have more time to do Wi-Fi stuff. And then I can probably dedicate more morning time to that because I don't have as much to do throughout the day. Um, so very long way of saying you got to get systems in place. You have to get systems in place for both businesses so that when you have to address something outside of your normal system, you have the time to sacrifice on one business to give to the other business. 
yeah, got to be realistic about what's possible. And, and yeah, I mean, the basic thing about scaling any business is developing systems so that so that you're not having to babysit everything. Um, so imagine you had a family on top of that. Uh, how would you make it work? For as much as is possible, involve the kids. Now, there's some obvious caveats to that, right? If the kids are too young to be helpful, that's a problem. Um, if you have time-sensitive issues, you got to get them out of your way. But when you can, when you can take four hours to do a one-hour chore, take the kids with you, um, because yeah, you're sacrificing time, but you're spending time with the family and you're teaching somebody who's going to be your future helper. So you're also paying that time penalty up front. So down the road, the kids can be an actual asset to you because whatever old, how, however old your kids are now in a few years, they will be an asset. They'll get old enough to be able to do stuff with you. So involve them as much as possible. And as much as you can, anytime you have the ability to make a simple chore, take longer. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, teaching kids how to do something, you got a three, five, three-year-old, five-year-old, they're more of a hindrance than a help at first. So you just got to be willing to take an hour to do a 15 minute job. And if you have the time to spare to do that, get them involved. Otherwise you look at the job and say, Hey, is this something that I have time for or not? If it has to be done right away, just say, Hey, sorry, daddy's got to go do this and go get it done. Um, so learn how to prioritize that way is the big thing. And then, um, you got to learn how to communicate with your wife. Uh, that's the other big thing is, you know, most people go through a 50 year marriage, never learning how to speak to their spouse properly, but you've got to be able to communicate with your wife in such a way as she knows what your priorities are in the day so that she can be a help to you and not be a hindrance to you. And this isn't just for farming. This is for any work from home thing. Uh, sorry, this is kind of another tangent here, but, um, or we may wind up falling into a whole new subject. I don't know. That's kind of a rabbit hole, but um, the communication gap between men and women is huge. And women in general don't understand how to prioritize conversation with a man, with her husband. Um, and I don't mean this derogatorily. It's just they, they, we, we communicate differently, men and women. And women do not seem to get the concept of now is not the time, dear. Uh, they will come to you with every problem and every thought in their head, expecting an answer from you on the spot with no concept of if that problem is appropriate scale, you know, is of appropriate nature to be interrupting the work you're currently doing. So you've got to be able to explain to her like, Hey, if something's broken, if the washing machine's broken, it can wait till I come inside from on the tractor. You don't have to tell me right now. If the house is on fire, I need to know, right? You, you got to teach her how to prioritize these things. Uh, something I did very early on in my marriage was um, I would come home from work and my wife would meet me at the door and just start talking and throwing everything that happened at me to, to her at me the second I walked through the door. And I told her, I'm like, you got to give me 30 minutes to decompress from work, to, to get out of uniform, to readjust my thinking and just be home before you start throwing shit at me. And I said it to, an, to her in a way that was just, you know, nice. I wasn't mean to her about it. And she took it really well. And to this day, when I come home, she gives me a chance to, to well, now I work from home, but uh, in general, when I'm coming off of a hard day of, of, of any kind of work, she gives me 
time to decompress before throwing all the problems at me unless it's an actual emergency. So that's something for any work from home, whether it's IRL, farming, Wi-Fi money, you've got to establish that line of communication with your wife to where she understands when she can interrupt you and when she can't. Because if you don't, uh, you, you're, well, the worst case scenario is you two are going to grow to resent each other and you're going to wind up divorced. But you're, you're also not going to get as much done at work uh, on your business and you're going to be fighting all the time. So you've got to learn to communicate with your wife in that manner. Um, God, probably the most, well, I don't know if it's the most important, but it's definitely in the top three most important things you can establish in your marriage. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like maybe this week there were a couple of events that you uh, you had to um, kind of explain that, uh, that situation. Um, <clears throat> so it wasn't with my wife. It was uh, actually with my mother-in-law. Uh, so the last couple of days, I've been helping my father-in-law build a uh, pole barn which is of course the absolute worst time to be building one is right now as we're heading into the farming season. But you know, he, he, for the last 10 years, anytime I've needed something, he's stopped everything he's doing to come help me. So I, I am not complaining about it, the poor timing. I'm just noting that it's something else in your life. You have to balance is non-business things factoring into your, your IRL business and, and Wi-Fi business, right? So while I'm dealing with this juggling on my farm, I'm also helping him on a pretty major project. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little off topic here, but uh, the other thing is, you know, he, he's 70 years old and you don't leave a 70 year old man alone working on ladders with power tools, uh, forklift and bucket truck and climbing around on a, you know, this, this pole barn we're building is probably 15 feet in the air. You don't leave him alone to do that. Yeah, he's had, he has 50 years experience doing this kind of stuff and can certainly do it better than I can, but you don't leave him alone because one fall and he's done. Um, you've seen Cernovich talk about this all the time. Like after, after the age of 60, men should not climb up and down on ladders. Well, that may be true, but it, this is the real world. You ain't stopping him from building a pole barn just because he's 70. So the best thing you can do is to be there alongside of him to make sure he's safe to make sure he doesn't fall, to make sure nothing bad happens. And that's on top of the fact that if he, you know, I would help him anyways, just because he's, he's family and he's a, he's a good man. Um, but back to the topic at hand, the, comp, the concept of now is not the time. While we're doing this stuff, uh, I'm operating a forklift for him and, and we rented a forklift for the weekend. So he, he climbs up in this basket, I raise him up and we're moving around and he's climbing up there trying to put on the purlins and the roofing and, and whatnot and my mother-in-law will come up and just be like hey i just found this sprinkler over here and i'm wondering if we should it's like not not now not now we're, we're doing things I, you know your husband's on top of a wobbly roof that we're trying to, to secure and make not wobbly anymore and you're talking about irrigation and, and gardening and stuff like every thought that goes through her head has to be spoken on the spot and he's gotten really good at just tuning her out. He's been married for over 50 years. He could just tune her out and keep going. But um, I'm like, no, now's not the time. Like, like bring this up later, go write it down. And so I, I watched that. And then I thought about how my wife used to do that, but I trained her not to. And then I got to think about it more. And I know a group of guys who, who work from home doing uh, Wi-Fi stuff. And they say every problem their wife has is, you know, interruption to their day. And they've, 
they have yet to figure out how to explain to her that when I'm, you know, when I'm in the office working, you cannot come to me and say, Hey, I need help changing the kid's diaper or, Hey, the, you know, the, the garbage disposal isn't working or what, like the wives don't seem to know how to prioritize what's going on. And the husbands have not figured out how to communicate to her. Now's not the time, you know, I'm using that as a general phrase, but that concept is something that is crucial to, to teach your wife when you're a business owner. I mean, even if you're not a business owner, I mean, how many guys sit in the office in, in corporate world and their, their phone rings once an hour with their wife calling them with every single problem, hiccup and, and uh, issue. And it's just, you know, women are geared mentally, biologically, whatever, to look to their husbands as the problem solvers. I, I get that, that you married us because we, we demonstrated competency at problem solving. But what they don't seem to understand is that the second you have a problem isn't the time to call your husband. You, you have to know the appropriate times to call him and ask him questions and to interrupt his day or to wait and not interrupt his day and how to, how to scale these problems accordingly. They just, um, I don't know if it's a Western woman thing or if, if, every, if we had cell phones in the 1800s, if uh, the pioneers would have had these same problems. Um, I don't know. I think it has something to do with the more accessible you are, whether through cell phone or through being at home, the less she's going to take the initiative to solve problems on her own. Um, so I think it's a, it's a real communication hurdle that men and women have, uh, husbands and wives have. And if you want to survive in the work from home environment, you really have to establish the concept of now is not the time. Man, I really, really hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and especially so if you have kids in the picture and those kids are, you know, busier or um, difficult uh, because uh, even if she were previously pretty self-sufficient, after that, she will be looking for every bit of help in every direction she can get it right away. <laughs> and so it will really tax... Uh, what you thought was was good communication. I uh, just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, and there's no easy answer to it, right? Because uh, like you said, a, a woman who was previously self-sufficient, you know, she marries you, the more you demonstrate your competency, the less competent she has to be. And that's probably not the best way to phrase that. That that sounds pretty insulting to the, to the wives out there, and that's not my intent. It's just the more you demonstrate an ability to make her life easier and to solve her problems, the more she's going to rely on you and the more she's going to go to you. So it's, it's the worst kind of positive feedback loop of you solve a problem for her to demonstrate your value. And she goes, Oh, he's valuable. So the next time she goes straight to you with the problem and she keeps going to you because you keep solving the problems. You know, the flip side of that is if you, have you ever seen the marriages where the husband is incapable of solving a problem and the wife has to do everything herself, all you see is a resentful witch and a beaten down man who, who hasn't taken his eyes off of his shoes in 30 years. You know, a man who's never looked up because he's always getting beaten down by his wife. So, um, you know, if you had to be strictly binary here and choose between a wife who interrupts you with every problem or the wife who just berates you and beats you down, I'd rather have a wife that interrupts me all the time because at least then I am still, I still hold my man card. But um, I somehow stumbled into a hack where I explained to my wife, uh, to, to something to, to the extent of like 90% of the time, she can assess the situation properly and say, hey, now is not the time to interrupt him. Um, 
but I don't know that I could ever give somebody a actionable advice on what to say to their wife, um, partially because I, I have a more masculine wife. Uh, and I say masculine in the sense that like, she says what she means and she shows up on time and knows how a clock works. Like, you know, basic things that women don't seem to understand my wife does. So, you know, if, if your typical woman is 95% feminine and 5% masculine, my wife is like 85% feminine and 15% masculine. But that 15% is the difference between, you know, is the difference of being able to communicate with her in a way we both understand. And, uh, I don't know that I could give anybody any advice that's actionable to, you know, a method of communication that, that would work for them. You know, I just, I think I got very lucky in my regard that I can tell my wife things and she listens to what I say and doesn't try to extract meaning that's not there. She just takes what I say at face value and I can take what she says at face value. It's, it's a very unique situation. I, I think I'm just lucky in that regard. Uh, I'm still laughing about the, the comment about <laughs> reading clocks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, awesome this is a non-podcast, so we can just speak our minds and <laughs> take it for what it's worth. <laughs> well, you know, I saw a tweet, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago where it's like, if you expect a woman to show up on time, you're the idiot. And I'm like, that's true. Except for me, it's not true. Like, uh, so much so that, um, you know, so my wife and I have taught each other back and forth how to communicate with each other. So um, if I if I were to say like, hey, I want to get up in the morning and get going, that has no meaning to her. If I say I want to wake up at 6 a.m. and be out the door by 6.30, she will be out the door at 6.30. But I have to be very specific. I cannot, if I say, oh, I want to leave sometime between 7 and 8 a.m., that means we're leaving at 8 a.m. Giving her a time window means nothing. She'll just take the latest hour. Right. But if I say, if I give her a hard time, she will meet that hard time. Um, you know, I, again, maybe that, that's like a one in a thousand trait, but somehow it happened. But um, anyway, uh, man, we did a lot of talking on farming today. Um, God, I really wanted to talk about AI uh, audiobook stuff, but I, um, I'll give a five minute rundown on it and I think I'll put out a sub stack on it. But uh, the, the short version is, I've been using um, some AI software to narrate an, an audiobook for me, and um, it's going really well. And I gotta say, like, it, I'm, I'm doing a fiction novel as an experiment, and it's it's going really well. But you can still tell that it's AI if you're used to listening to AI talk. Um, but it does get more inflection than I expected it to get. The big thing is it's a difference between spending $100 to do an audiobook and like $5,000 to do an audiobook. There's cheaper ways to do the audiobooks. If you use a studio, you can do some profit sharing and stuff, but it's um the studios right now are pissing me off. The the sh again, the the very condensed version is um they communicate poorly. It takes a week to get a hold of them. Um you know, they're supposed to give you profit reports every quarter and it winds up being like two months after the quarter. It's, uh, they're just, they're, they, they're not very good and reliable. And it's like, you, you kind of deserve to be replaced by AI if you're going to be this bad. You know, I feel bad for the narrators. They're putting a lot of work into it and do a really good job. But the studios that, that edit and put all this stuff together are, they're really, uh, 
they got to step up their game if they want to compete with AI. Um, this is one area where AI deserves to put them out of business because they're not holding up their end of it. Um, so that's that's a very condensed version. Uh, I'll put out a Substack article in a couple of days that kind of dives more into this. Um, and then maybe next week we can talk, talk a little more on it. It's just they, they annoy me. It annoys me when uh, people give really shitty service and, and battling the competency crisis. So um, anyway, you got any, any final thoughts or anything you want to put out for this episode? Uh, this stuff is great for you know, showing the Wi-Fi crowd who wants to go out and you know, transition to the rural life, do some farming things, what is feasible and what isn't feasible and what you're actually getting into. Cause you know, like nice sunsets and, and, you know, some charming animals sounds great and looks good in pictures, but in real life, you know, there's some serious things to, to figure out. And uh, if you've got lots of burdens going on at the same time, it just may blow up in your face. So um, good to hear from you going through this process already. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, the rest of us who are going to be there someday um, have, have an idea what we're in for. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'll try to get better about documenting what, what's gone on for the last uh, about a year and a half for me now, coming up on two years to try to help close that gap of the one year farmer versus the 40 year farmer. Um, you know, just I'll, I'll try to think of more actionable stuff to write down. Maybe someday I can put out a book about it or maybe, you know, the first five years of farming, something like that. But um, anyway, that's going to cut it for tonight. And you know, normally we do morning episodes, but uh, now we're doing them. At, this is actually yet another adjustment. We used to record in the mornings. Now we're recording in the evenings because my mornings are packed with farm stuff. So that leaves my brain a little spent. I can't talk as long as I was because I spent all day just, uh, you know, doing things. So we'll uh, keep adjusting and try to come up with a good system for the podcast where we could talk a little bit longer in the hopefully in the next few weeks. Uh, but we're going to call it here. Everybody have a good rest of your weekend. Remember, nobody's coming to save you. It is up to you to save yourselves. Oh, um, well, should have plugged this before that, but uh, you can find us on Substack. If you didn't get this podcast on Substack, you can go there to download it. Um, you can leave comments, leave reviews, tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, ask questions. You can also find us on Twitter at Wi-Fi underscore Pioneers. Uh, again, reach out to us, tell us what you like, what you didn't like, uh, any questions you have, and we will go deeper into it in the next episode, or you can DM me and I'll, you know, see if I can answer your questions a little more directly. Uh, so have a good night, everybody.